to the letter of Second John. Letter of Second John. Find ourselves in verse four this morning. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer, asking for His uh, help for this time. Our Lord and our God, we've just sung of Your great love, the great power that You demonstrated in being the, the Lamb slain for us. In going to the cross and dying for our sins. And then the power of God demonstrated in your resurrection. And you being raised to newness of life. To show that you had paid the full price for sins. Lord, we just uh, celebrate you this morning. And I ask for your help this morning. Lord, we ask for your help. That we would rightly understand your word. And then through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would apply it to our lives. Help us, Lord God, to be those who are walking in the truth, in your truth. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now I'm told the uh, Super Bowls today, someone said uh, they were expecting a shorter sermon from me. And I asked, what time was the, the Super Bowl? And I think it's the evening. So we have plenty of time, right? No, I'm joking. So, uh, anyway, in, in all seriousness, we turn our attention this morning to uh, walking in the truth. Just by way of introduction, I want you to contemplate this. Proverbs twenty three twenty four says this. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. And he who sires a wise son will be glad in him. Now, I know these are Proverbs written by human father to human sons, but they are divinely inspired. At the heart of this reflects God's attitude towards his children. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. What a blessed thought. And that's the thought that we're going to contemplate this morning. That the Lord rejoices greatly as his children Walk in the truth. This morning we're just going to be looking at verse 4. And before we get there, the letter is short enough. I, I would just like to read this letter to you. Letter of Second John. The elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. For the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves, that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house, and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face, so that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. Beloved, we'll be looking at verse 4, where John tells us that he was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. So the thing I want you to contemplate this morning, to really just hone in on your thoughts, is that the the Apostle John's great joy in seeing young believers Walking in the truth is but a reflection of the heart of God. It's a reflection of the heart of God that the Father takes great joy to see His children walk in His ways. The Apostle John greatly rejoiced 
to see believers walking the truth. We're going we're to walk through the details of this verse and then deal with some implications at, at the tail end. And uh, I think it'll all make sense as we, it comes together. As I mentioned last week, this letter follows the customary format for a first century letter. You've got uh, the person who wrote it. You've got who it's written to. They're not named specifically. You have the elder who we believe to be the Apostle John and the chosen lady, which only God knows who it is. Uh, people have taken, taken guesses, but we simply do not know. Uh, a, a lady who uh, the Lord put on John's heart to write to who needed ministry and who John took time out of a busy apostle's career and ministry to minister to one dear lady and her children. The introduction of the letter is followed by joy and an expression of pleasure. That's what we see in verse 4. So verse 4, we're not hit, we haven't hit the main body of the letter yet. It's still kind of that, that introduction and transition. In a first century letter, you would have the introduction, uh, who it's to, who it's from, who it's to, a customary word of greeting, and then you would usually have an expression of joy. And so that's what we see here. In Paul's letters, this expression of joy takes the form of thanksgiving. And we see that in Romans 1.8, 1 Corinthians 4, 1, 4 through 8, Philippians 1.3, and following, Colossians 1.3, and following, and, and so on. Most of Paul's letters begin this way. But just because it follows the customary format, don't, don't fall into the, the thinking that somehow uh, that um, this is just like customary and he's just giving uh, fluff. This isn't, this isn't fluff. This is earnestness. This is truth. And even from this, there's much from us, for us to learn. Why is a transition? In, in a sense, verse 4 can be seen as a transition between the greeting and the body. It, there is, it's, it's not a throwaway sentence. The, John the Apostle tells us that he had great joy to see this lady's children walking in the truth. Now, I just want us to kind of walk through this detail by detail, word by word. We see there in verse 4, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth. Now, what kind of joy is this? I find the New American Standard Bible's translation, I was very glad to be somewhat unsatisfying. Because... From this sense, standpoint, was John glad? Was he very glad? Yes, he was glad. He was very glad. But the term, the term glad, and perhaps this is a little bit subjective, the term glad doesn't quite fully express the exuberance that is expressed by the author in the Greek text. And that's why I, I, I like how other translations have worded this. Um, John is trying to convey an exuberant joy that came over him. The, the word here is, is really the passive, given in a passive voice, but a past tense of the word to rejoice. The, the same word that, that Paul uses many times, that we are to rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. It's that same word. But, it, it, but it, here he adds an adverb to it. Adverb to it. He says greatly that he greatly rejoices, or the word could be translated exceedingly rejoices. And this phrase is only used twice in the New Testament. That is the phrase to exceedingly rejoice or greatly rejoice. Here and in John's next letter that we'll look at after we finish this, in 3 John, 3 John uh, 3, where he says, I was very glad when the brethren came and testified to your truth. Uh, that is how you are walking in the truth. So again, a similar idea that we find there, but the idea is that of an exuberant apostle. He is rejoicing. This is, this is not some minor celebration. This is a major joyous event in the apostle's day when he saw this. This is why I like how the English Standard Version, and I think most other translations uh, convey this, by saying, I rejoiced greatly. I rejoiced greatly. And again, it's still a bit of an understatement. But, it, but I think it conveys better more than, I was very happy. Right? I was very glad. Right? So the idea is that he was rejoicing and rejoicing with, with great rejoicing. And what was the occasion of, the great, of great joy in the apostle's life? Was it a great vision of God? 
Was it getting inspiration and scripture from God? No, no doubt those were times of great joy for John. But here he highlights seeing children, in fact, this lady's children, walking in the truth. So the apostle clearly identifies for us the occasion of the joy. He found some of the elect lady's children walking in truth. Now, just by way of reminder, I want to remind us that it seems best to view this letter, letter 2 John, as a personal letter from the Apostle John to an unnamed woman and her children, who are only identified as the elect lady and her children. And here I'll just remind us that if the plain sense of Scripture makes sense, we are to seek no other sense. So we agree with MacArthur's assessment about this, about this book, saying that, that while some Bible teachers have said that the elect lady is actually the church at Babylon, he, he says this, don't ask me where that came from. Others say this is an unnamed local church. Others say it's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Others say it's Martha. Others say it's a lady named Electa to the Electa lady. Others say it's a lady named Curia to the elect Curia. Where do they get all that, MacArthur says? Nowhere. His words, not mine, is not in the text. This is a personal letter. This is a personal letter parallel to 3 John, which is clearly written from the, below, from the, from the elder to the beloved Gaius. Unquote. So all that to say, when you see the word lady, think of her as a lady. And when you see the word children, think of them as children, right? We're not to seek that uh, the figurative metaphorical sense if the plain sense makes sense, right? And in this case, it, it does. Right? So the Apostle John found some of the elect lady's children walking in the truth. Now the term, the term found here is the, the Greek word Urisco, which means nothing to you, except uh, listen to how it's developed. John wrote this word in the first person singular perfect tense. Unless you're a grammar expert, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But think of the past tense. Right? And what that does is it changes, it conjugates the Greek term to a term you know well. Eureka! Right? That's what it means. And we take that Greek term. If you could say Eureka, you just spoke Greek. I found, right? So we brought that into English, saying, you know, as a term that we, we really understand, that we find found something, so that really helps us to understand John's enthusiasm. It's not that the Greek word always carries that enthusiasm, but in English, it certainly does. We don't say eureka about something bad. We, we say it about something good. So at least in the English translation part of it, it helps us understand John's great joy when he found these children walking in the truth. And it wasn't as if he was out looking for them. This is speaking of when he's talking about found. He, it, it talks about a circumstance in which he saw them and saw them walking in the truth. He doesn't give us the details. He doesn't give us the location. It's also helpful to, to notice for us that, that John writes this in, in, a, in what's called the perfect tense, which helps us to understand that he's not talking about momentary obedience. Momentary obedience is the obedience that every employee gives to their employer. When the employer is watching, the employee works. And then when the, employ when the employer isn't watching, what happens? Right? There are some who don't work. Uh, thankfully, it's not true of everybody. And it shouldn't be true of believers. But it happens. Momentary obedience is, is like the obedience of children who, who, knowing that their behavior will get reported back to mom or dad, obey only when they realize that an uncle or aunt's watching them or somebody that knows their mom or dad is watching them. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what John is talking about. The, the perfect tense that John uses here helps us to understand that not only had he found them, seen them on this occasion, but, he, but it conveys a level of confidence that, that he would continue to find them this way, that they would continue to walk in the truth. The, the perfect tense uh, really expresses that, that continued faithfulness um, it, that, that would serve John's cause of joy. So should the Apostle John have the opportunity to see these children again, he expresses confidence that he would again Rejoice that he would again find them walking in truth. 
Now, when some people read the verse, I was, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth. When some people read that, they immediately go to the negative, right? We must admit that God has wired us all differently. Some are optimists, some are pessimists, right? So as you read this, think about this, that that, that, that has caused a bit of divide about this verse and how it should be uh, understood. There are some who, who tend to see the glass as half full, who see this statement as a somewhat pejorative statement. That is, that is a, a statement where John is expressing approval for the children who are walking the truth, but also disapproval for the children who are not walking in the truth. So the fact that the, the uh, translation reads there, uh, I was very glad to find some of your children walking the truth. They really kind of put emphasis on the some. You know how we can read things differently. So he says that they would interpret it like this. I was very glad to see some of your children walking in the truth with, with the implication that not all of them are. And boy, that's really disappointing. So such, such a view seems to be predominantly held by those who, who see this letter written to a church. Right? We don't take that view, but, but there are many people who do. And, and when they do that, they know that, that John, if, if John's, when he talks about children, if he's referring to the church, to the Christians, well, they know not everybody in the church is going to be walking in the truth because that's just not the way it works in any New Testament epistle. So, so they come to the conclusion that, well, since it's written to a church, therefore, it's got to be that some children are walking in the truth and some are not. And that's what John is implicating here. But beloved, such a negative thought runs counter to the clear statement of John's joy. He's exuberant with joy. He's exuberant with joy. He's, he's not like, well, I'm celebrating on one hand, but on the other, I'm really mourning. Right? There's, there's no mixed feelings in this. He is rejoicing by the clear text of Scripture. Don't take my word for it. Follow along in the text. He says, I was very glad. Or the ESV says, I, I greatly rejoiced. Right? There's no hint in there of some shadowy disapproval of like these so-called children that are not walking in the truth. So there isn't a negative thought at all in John's statement. So how are we to understand what John is saying here? Well, the first thing I want you to notice is that at least in the New American Standard Bible, I didn't check any others, the word some is italicized. And, the, and an italicized word means that there's not a Greek word behind it. The, the translators put it in there to try to help smooth out the translation to help you understand the meaning of the text. In other words, John himself does not say, I was very glad or I greatly rejoiced to find some of your children walking in the truth. What he says is, I was very glad or I, re- I greatly rejoiced to find your children walking in the truth, really out of your children or of your children. It's a little bit of a, in English, it's a, it's an, it doesn't translate well, which is why the translators have put some of your children in there. They, they've had to put that, in other words, to keep that, that sentence flowing uh, relatively smoothly. But, but John literally says, I rejoice greatly having found of your children walking in the truth. Now, D.M. and Hebert helpfully explains that this expression has a partitive force. In other words, it implies that he had met only part of the children. John does not say, well, I met all your children and I rejoice in the ones who are walking in the truth. But, you know, I have to talk to you about the ones that aren't. He's not saying that. He's saying of the children that he had met, they were walking in the children. The expression of your children or some of your children means, as Donald Burdick explains, John's expression does, does not necessarily mean that her children were not all faithful. It may mean that John had come in contact with some, but not all, who were walking in the truth, unquote. And I, I'd say that's exactly what John means by this. Because again, there's no, there's no rebuke here for children who are not walking in the truth. His intent is to convey um, thanksgiving, to convey rejoicing uh, to this lady. And undoubtedly, John's great joy resulted in thanksgiving to God, as it often did to Paul. That's why Paul wrote about thanksgiving in this part of the, his letter. So where did this encounter take place? Where did John uh, find these children of the elect lady uh, walking the truth? Well, we just don't know. John doesn't tell us. And, and it's real, really not important. Perhaps the elect lady would have known where that encounter was. We can guess 
and that's all it is, that it would have been in Ephesus. So John's place of ministry during this period of his life was in and around the city of Ephesus. So perhaps some of these of this lady's children had come to Ephesus either for business or for other reasons and, and had been there long enough that John had seen them walking in the truth. We just don't know. But notice the reason for John's joy. It wasn't just that he saw the children of this elect lady. And it's likely these are adult children because of how, the, how, it's, how it's worded. But the point is, it wasn't just, he wasn't just rejoicing just to see the children. Although I'm sure he was glad to see uh, people that he knew. The, the point is that he saw them doing what? Walking in the truth. The term walk is often used in the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in a literal way. So you read the word walk and it just means walk. It's used to speak of physical, literal motion. But in the context of 2 John, uh, we can't interpret the word walk in this literal way. If John had said, I rejoice greatly to see some of your children walking in Ephesus, then we would say, yes, he's talking about literal walking. But he doesn't do that. He says, I rejoice greatly to see your children walking in the truth. Truth is the realm in which they walked. And so because that's not a physical realm, we understand this is a case where the, where the literal sense doesn't make sense. And so we're forced to look for a figurative sense. And that's what we go to. The, the, the realm of truth is the realm in which they lived or walk, with the, walk with, with the term walk being used in a figurative sense. Uh, Vine's Expository Dictionary explains the term walk is never used in the literal sense in Paul's or John's epistles. I find that very fascinating. That, the, that, that, that John and Paul wanted to drive home so clearly what the word walk meant that they didn't use it in a physical way. They just used it in a figurative way. Right? So, and, and it's not always in a positive sense. But, but Vines um, clarifies and says that when it's used figuratively, it is signifying the whole round of activities of the individual life. The whole round of activities of the individual life, whether of the unregenerate or of the believer. Some examples. Ephesians 4.17. So this is Paul. So I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. So there the term walk, you could substitute live. Uh, it, it would be a, a good one word substitute for that. Colossians 2.6. In a positive sense. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So the realm is, is not in truth there, but it is in Him. And as you will see, these things are, as you know, they are aligned together. From John's words, from John's pen, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he writes this, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And then in 1 John 2.11, he tells us, But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So both, both John and Paul use the term walk to speak of how a person lives their life, whether of evil, whether um, pursuing uh, walking in the darkness or walking in the light and pursuing righteous living. So when you read the word walk, understand that this is referring to, to how you live your life. And notice that the realm of walking and living that John highlights is in the truth. And that is the realm that, we're, that, that really causes the Apostle John to rejoice here. Now, this is the fifth occurrence of the word truth in just four verses, which helps us understand that, that in this short letter, it's one of the, one of the themes uh, of the, this letter and, and something that was very much on the apostle's heart and something that he wanted to clearly communicate uh, to this uh, elect lady. So he writes there, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth. And notice there, he doesn't say in the truth. 
And, but though that's true, we do need to understand that the context clearly indicates that that is what he's talking about. As Donald Burdick explains, the word truth here clearly means the truth. As we see in verses 1 and verse 3, we see that this is the truth. It's not just that they're walking faithfully and truthfully. They are walking in the truth. The ladies' children conducted their lives in the sphere of Christian truth, is, is how Donald Burdick explains it. Pastor MacArthur occurs with this and, and helpfully explains the implication that it has on our lives as Christians. He explains that the walking, that walking in the truth means through life conducting themselves within the framework of truth. They, meaning these children, they were literally controlled by the truth. They were moving around in the truth. Their life was defined by the truth. The truth is not just to believe, it's a way of living. And then drawing the application to us, he continues, you don't just know the truth and believe the truth. If you're a Christian, you live the truth. It controls you. It defines you. It is the path you walk. It is the life you live, unquote. And so that really gets to the heart of what, what brought joy to the apostle was seeing this joy was seeing them walk in the truth. The source of the joy was the children walking in the truth. And you might stop and, and say, well, why? It, it's good when people obey God. But, but, but why? What would bring the apostles so much joy? And I, I just want to really bring for our contemplation this morning the, the thought that the source of the apostles' joy was in seeing believers obey the Father's commandment. The source of the apostles' joy was, was seeing these children walk in the truth and obey the Father's commandment, because he ties it in for us. In, in the end of verse 4, the second part of verse 4, he says, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. So the reason he's rejoicing is because these children had heard the truth of the Father's commandment and were obeying the Father to actually live that way. Now, again, these aren't, we're talking in generalities. We're talking uh, in principles. And, and what you need to do is, is think through your life in a very specific sense. What does it mean for you to walk in the truth? Right? That becomes very practical. It determines how you live your life, the decisions you make, the things you do and don't do. So while, while we're contemplating this, I want you to be thinking about and ask the Lord to help you apply this to your life. What, is it, what does it mean for you to walk in the truth? Now notice that John himself in, includes, or he, he includes himself in this command. He says, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Not, he wasn't just talking about the children. He includes himself and says, we have this commandment from the Father. Now, if you were to do a, a Bible search, if you were to, to, um, to do uh, some kind of Bible search with a, a program, looking for the phrase uh, or command to walk in truth, you would not find one. However, the spirit of the command to walk in truth is pervasive. It's interesting that the command, while the specific command, walk in the truth, is not given anywhere in Scripture, the truth of it, or the spirit of that command, is found throughout the Scriptures. And just to prove that point to you, we're going to do a little excursus on some passages that talk about this. So I'll give you the reference and read it to you. You can jot down the reference and follow along. I'll just move along fast enough that probably you won't have time to get there and read it. So, so just jot these down and you can read them later. Genesis 17.1 Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Again, you see the term walk, saying live. God is commanding Abram, who we know as Abraham, to walk before him and be blameless. So the command is definitely there, although the exact words, as he's saying, walk in truth, well, that's the spirit of what the Lord is commanding Abraham, but it's certainly not his exact words. But not only do we have this in Genesis and multiple places, uh, look at Exodus, Exodus 16.4, Exodus 16.4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, 
that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. So the Lord is telling Moses that he is going to test the people by providing a circumstance in which they're going to face a decision. They're going to face some temptation not to walk in his way, but the Lord, where he provides temptation, always provides a way of escape. So the Lord isn't setting them up for failure. He doesn't enjoy when people sin. He is not the author of evil. But he provides a circumstance by which he will test them to see if they will walk in his instruction. This highlights the fact that they had been commanded to walk in his ways. So again, the the idea of walking in truth, walking the Lord's commands, is pervasive. Exodus 18, uh, 19 to 20. Here is Jethro's counsel to Moses. He says, "You you be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Notice that phrase, the way in which they are to walk. So Moses' job was to teach them how they are to live their lives to, to, to God's glory. In Leviticus chapter 26, verses uh, 3 and 4, Leviticus 23, uh, 26, verses 3 and 4, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments... So as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season, so that the land will yield its produce, and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Notice that first phrase, if you walk in my statutes. Sounds a lot like walking in the truth, doesn't it? Because we know the Lord's statutes is truth. So it's very close to the, to the command that uh, John refers to in his letter of Second John. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 33, again we see, You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. So there's the command to walk in the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, to walk in His ways, His truth. Deuteronomy 8, 6, Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways. And to fear him. Joshua 22 verse 5. And again, I'm taking you to this, doing this little excursion to help, you show, help show you how important this theme is to the entire Bible. And important to your relationship with God. In Joshua 22 verse 5. And this is Joshua's commands to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. He says, Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Notice that phrase, walk in all his ways. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3. We read of David in David's charge to his son Solomon to, as being king. He said this, Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. To keep his statutes, to walk in all his ways. In Psalm 26.3, we read this, For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. Are you there? It's not a command. It's, it's given in a descriptive sense. But the, the psalmist is saying, I have walked in your truth. That's what the Lord calls us as believers to do. In Psalm 81, verse 13, we see the Lord's heart for this. He says, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. And that's what he says to us. Though we are not Israel, the the heart of God is, is, is poured out to us through Jesus Christ. And he calls us and he says, oh, that my people would walk in my ways. And the psalmist says in 86, 11, knowing full well that he fails the Lord at times, yet he cries out, teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Psalm 86, 11. That's the prayer of our hearts as believers, that that we would walk in his truth. Psalm 119, verse 35, declares this. It really just pleads the Lord as a prayer. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Make me to walk. It's, it's, It's saying that, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I need you to help me walk in your commandments. 
For my heart will lead me astray. I delight in your law. Help me to stay loyal to your law. In, in moving to the prophets in Jeremiah 9, 9 verse 13. Chapter 9 verse 13. Tells us this. The Lord said. Because they have forsaken my law. Which I have set before them. And have not obeyed my voice. Nor walked according to it. But have walked after the stubbornness of their heart. He was going to bring judgment. In other words there was an expectation. That his people would obey his voice. And walk according to what he had declared. Walk according to the truth. Which, which tells us of, of the expectation that God has of us and of all people on the earth, that they would hear his voice and obey his voice, to walk in it. Moving to the New Testament, Romans 6, 4, where Paul says, Therefore, since we have been buried through him through baptism into death, uh, sorry, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. In 2 Corinthians 4.2. 2 Corinthians 4.2. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. They're walked by the Spirit. It's it's the realm and the Spirit. If you're walking by the Spirit, you're walking in the truth. Galatians 5.25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And and that term, uh, walk in the manner of of a worthy of, is talking about of equal weight, of equal value. You've been called with a high calling, so live according to that manner. Walk according to that manner. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an aroma and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Ephesians 5, 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. Ephesians 5, 15, therefore be careful how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Colossians 2.6 Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. There it's a, it's a wonderful verse in 1 Thessalonians 4.1 that draws together the idea of, of living, uh, being instructed on how to walk, that is how to live and please God. You know, how is it that sinful human beings, that, that is saints who are redeemed and yet are still prone to sin, how can we ever even please God? It's only by the grace of God, God working in us, that he could even be pleasing in us. This is nothing, nothing of our own account or nothing that stems from us would give the Lord rejoicing, but it's what He produces in our lives that gives Him great joys. So I have, I have read these verses and gone this little excursus for, for the main point of helping you to see how important it is that we walk in the truth. If you are a believer, you must walk in the truth. If you are not a believer, you will not be walking in the truth. You're still called to walk in the truth according to God because God made you and you're accountable to Him as His creation. But you are identified as an unbeliever by how you walk. And it really fits in with what we've learned from the letter of 1 John. So if you walk in the darkness, you're an unbeliever. In other words, if you walk in the realm of disobedience, you're an unbeliever. That's the clear message of Scripture. Now here, we're not talking about uh, perfection in our walk with the Lord. We talk about pleasing the Lord or walking in the truth. It's not that of perfection. Right? Nowhere does the Bible say that Christians walk in a perfect, perfect life here on earth. Right? That's why John, the Apostle John, just to go back to 1 John, says that if we deny that we have sin, we make God a liar. So we still struggle with sin. We are tempted and we fall. But the Lord works in our life to call us to repentance and to pursue a path of righteousness for his name's sake. 
You see, a believer's life is marked by sin, but that sin doesn't characterize the believer. The, the walking in righteousness in the realm of truth characterizes the true believer. So when you, when you read in verse 4, I was very glad to find some of your children walking the truth just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. See, understand of John's great exuberant joy to see children walking in the truth in obedience to the command of God. Which as I began to think about this, wondered why the Lord would, would put such a verse in here in, in a letter for us to contemplate. And I, and I think it's this, and this is what I mentioned to you at the very beginning. The Apostle John's joy, great joy, at seeing these children walk in the truth is but a dim reflection of God's immense joy when his children walk in his ways. You may never have thought of it this way before. We, we've, we, we think about obedience to God in, in a sense of, well, if, if, I, if I don't do it, it's sin. And that's true. Disobedience to God is sin. But think about it from a positive viewpoint. When you obey God, you bring him joy. Great joy. How, how would I back that up for, from Scripture? Well, just, just briefly. We won't spend too much time on this. But, but I want you to think about this. Um, if you want, you could turn to Luke chapter 15. I'm just going to highlight a few verses in Luke 15. Luke 15 is all about sinners repenting. And we're given the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the, and the parable of the, of the prodigal son, an extended parable. But each one of them ends with something extraordinary, unanticipated. Look at, look at verse 7. Jesus said this, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons, righteous persons who need no repentance. There's rejoicing, great rejoicing in heaven when somebody repents of their sins and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that again in verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there, will be, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And I like how it's worded there. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels. It's as if the angels are spectators. You think the angels are rejoicing? They are. But the way Jesus words it here, it's like they're spectators. Who's doing the rejoicing? The implication is God is. God is the one who greatly rejoices when one sinner repents and believes in the Lord. And you know the, the whole parable of the son. The son rebels against his father, goes away, realizes that he could go to his father and seek forgiveness and even just be a servant to his father and he would be much better off. He's realized that he sinned against his father. But, but look with me at how the father re- responds. So he got up, this man, this prodigal son, got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That was very undignified for a Jewish man to do. Very inappropriate culturally. But he was so joyful over this son whom he had lost, who had now returning to him. He couldn't contain himself. And the, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, notice... But the father said to the slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and his sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again and he was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. There is a righteous party in heaven when even one person repents of their sins and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to do a little bit of an argument. I'm going to argue from the lesser to the greater. Not that our salvation is a lesser thing. But if God rejoices so much when we merely become his children, 
How much more do you think he rejoices when we become mature children walking in the truth? A lot. He rejoices a lot. It's quite amazing if you do a study on rejoicing. You might be amazed where you find passages about rejoicing. And not just rejoicing over piddly things. Not just rejoicing that your enemies are defeated. Not just rejoicing that you have food on the table. The father rejoices when his people walk in his ways. From the obscure prophet of Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17. We're told this. The Lord your God. Speaking of the future. The Lord your God is in your midst. A victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. That sounds very undignified, doesn't it? God doesn't care. God doesn't care what we think if he's dignified or not. He is dignified, of course. I'm not, I'm not demeaning, his, demeaning his character at all. But when we think about God, do we think about that? That he rejoices over us when we are walking in the truth. And again, don't misinterpret this. Don't misinterpret this. This isn't God rejoicing over you because you're such a wonderful person. And he, he just, you know, he just, he couldn't live without you. You know, that, that's not what he's saying. He's rejoicing over you because of his work in you. He began that good work. He's seeing the maturing of that work. And one day he will see the completion of that work. And the grandest celebration is yet to come at, at, at the grand celebration, the feast the wedding feast of the Lamb, when we are there, spotless, perfect, with Him. What a grand celebration that will be. The prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah also talk about this grand rejoicing that the Lord does over His people when they walk in His ways. It's simply amazing. So the implications, beloved, are that God calls us all believers to walk in the truth. And he, he's motivating us, even through this passage of Second John, in kind of an indirect way, saying that, that, that there's joy, not only for pastors that get to see you understand the truth and walk in it, not only for the Apostle John, but ultimately to God himself. You see, when God has called us to be holy, in the Old Testament and reaffirmed in the New Testament, there's a command. Be holy for I am holy. When God is rejoicing, he's rejoicing because he sees holiness formed in you. He rejoices not because of you in and of yourself. He rejoices because, again, of his work, of that forming holiness in you. Beloved, on this whole topic of Walking in the truth, I, I, I just want to really press this in on how important it is that you are actively listening and applying these things to your life. That whether you're studying in the Bible study or reading commentaries or books that, that help you understand uh, how the scriptures speak to us and how we are to live, you are to be a doer of the word. James 1.22 tells us that. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. You see, if we're not walking in the truth, we can be walking religiously. We can be walking in such a way where we convince ourselves that we're actually saved when we're not. We can be those hearers, people who hear the word of God, but who delude themselves. That is, they're very deceived. And probably the most dangerous position to be in is right there, the hearer who deludes themselves. To think that you're saved when you're not is the most dangerous position a person can be in. They're the persons that Jesus will turn to and say, I never knew you. And they will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Didn't we prophesy in your name? And he'll just say, turn away from me. I, I never knew you. But God will never say that to you if you are a doer of the word. The truth, you're walking in the truth. This isn't, this isn't about earning your salvation. No one can earn their salvation. Salvation comes through faith in Christ and Christ alone. And, and you can't walk in the truth if you're not saved. 
So if you're not regenerate, if you're not a child of God, if you don't have the Holy Spirit living within you, you, you can live a fake life, but you won't be really walking in the truth. And you might be able to deceive people around you for quite some time, but you can't deceive God. And there's no rejoicing uh, in Him for people who merely feign the truth. The Lord wants our hearts and all of it. The Lord wants us to love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to be totally fixated on Him. And because of that, He rejoices when we actually do, when we walk in that truth. When we see Him, we will be like Him, John says. And what a, what a day that will be when, when all the, the wrestlings with sin are done. And we will be like Him. We see Him as He is. The work of the Lord will be complete. And what a grand celebration. What a grand celebration we will have with the Lord. He will be rejoicing over His work in us. And we will be rejoicing over His work in us as well. What a, what, a, what a wonder He is. And what a wonder He is doing in our lives. It, it's just so important for us, for you, to be a doer of the Word. And if you have questions about that, do not hesitate to come ask me and talk to me about what that means. Or if you have questions about whether or not you really are a doer of the Word, whether or not you really are walking in the truth, please do not hesitate uh, to ask. Uh, Ask one of the leaders in the church or just come to me. I, I welcome the conversation and the opportunity to shepherd you through that. I pray for you weekly to be doers of the word, to be those who walk in the truth. Well, let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we ask for your help to be doers of the word. We ask for help to be those who are inclined to do your commandments. Teach us your commandments, O Lord, that we may walk in them. Incline our hearts. Make us sensitive, Lord God, to the conviction of your Holy Spirit and sin. So that we might turn away quickly. That we might be sensitive. That we might not deaden our conscience when we are convicted regarding sin. Lord, draw us ever closer to yourself. Form Christ in us, we pray. And help us to walk in your truth. And we just thank you, Lord, for the profound truth that you rejoice over your children who walk in the truth. May we be a source of joy for you, Lord God. Please help us to walk in your truth. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.